Hello, Alaska. This is Matt Buxton. And this is Pat Race. And this is a podcast about Alaska. Nice. So this week we are delving into the state's fiscal crisis because, you know, there's not enough else going on right now. and It's just been really quiet and uneventful in the Alaska political world that we decided that it's time to you know, talk about kind of the big picture budget issues with Alaska. You know, we've had financial woes. We've had a fiscal cliffs. We've had right sizing government. We've had ring fencing and, and oil development, all these sorts of things. And we, you know, we've just felt like it's time to finally put it to a rest. So me and Pat are going to solve the fiscal crisis. Right. Yeah. I, I think more. <laughs> first of all, I think we're going to explore this conversation and we'll talk about some of the potential solutions. But I don't think that, uh, you know, I mean, there's probably a reason that we haven't solved it already, huh? Well, I Maybe think it's, it's harder. It, yeah. I mean, this all really <laughs> kind of got born out of a conversation we were having offline uh, before our last podcast, where we were talking about sort of the approach to the dividend, what should you know be done with it, and and we found that we w- really weren't in very close agreement on what should be done with it, and so I think it's really an interesting point to sort of leap off into a conversation about kind of where where we are, how we got here, yeah. what, some of the solutions that are on the table that you know could help guide us out of this. Right. So we're stepping back a little bit from that from our kind of immediate conversation about the permanent fund and sort of stepping back and look at the broader fiscal picture. How, how is the, does Alaska's budget work and how should it work? And I think that kind of the first thing that we really want to define here is what do we call it, right? Yeah. For me, at least, the best way to kind of frame it in that I, I think the first person I really remember hearing say this was um, Pat Pitney, who was the budget director for the governor, who was became legislative division finance director for a little while and is now the president of the University of Alaska system. But she called it uh, a structural deficit. And I think that's exactly right. Right. We have a system that does not bring in enough revenue to pay out what we are kind of required to pay out under the law. Right. So there's the revenue and, and the expenses simply don't match. Right. And it's a structural issue that, you know, doesn't really go away in any one year, uh, unless I guess oil prices go really, really bonkers. But um, so, yeah, we, I mean, we have a massive, that, that's the big issue, right, is that we have a massive amount of volatility built into our budget uh, because it's all based on oil or it's largely based on oil, right? And so that has sort of been the big nexus of why we have been dealing with this for the last 10 years. Oil was, you know, sitting at, a high amount and now it is much lower than where it was yeah i think we got our first big wake-up call during the um walker administration when when walker came in and said uh oh no look at the price of oil it's yeah. like it was like it had gone from over a hundred dollars per barrel down to about 26 and he came in and and instead of giving a typical state of the state address. He separated them out. He did two addresses. The first one was the state of Alaska's fiscal situation, and it was bleak. And so from that point forward, we've, you know, that's when he ended up vetoing the permanent fund dividend and cut it about halfway from what it was. And then the legislature followed suit in years after that. And ever since, you know, we haven't followed the statutory PFD, and that's been a big talking point. But to step back and look at this like bigger, broader issue, um, five, six years ago, 
there was this lunch and learn by this nonprofit organization called Alaska Common Ground, and a guy named Cliff Grow gave a presentation on what he called the Grow Square, and it it was a it was kind of one of those. It was a little bit like I think tongue in cheek that he named it after himself, but it was also a very thoughtful presentation on the stakeholder groups involved in the fiscal discussion at that time. So chance of chances, Cliff Grow is now in the serving the Alaska legislature. So I went down to the Capitol building and I sat down and interviewed him about his thoughts on our structural deficit. Well, I think can I put in a little word here before we go into it? Please do. I I think it's important. I think Cliff Grow has been one of the people who's been like thinking a lot about the budget, right? Like how to communicate the the scope and scale and like necessity to act on the budget in a way that I think very few people are. I know as like a, a reporter on this, like you know, I've got twelve, thirteen no- years of knowledge covering this. Um, it's complicated, right? It, it's yeah. incredibly complicated to begin to sort of communicate these to the public to to talk about even what the options are on the table because a lot of the time we're finding that you know these conversations don't get started because people have the notion that well, just cut spending, right? You know, it's a complex problem that where these sort of simplistic solutions really alone aren't going to fix the problem, right? And so uh, anyway, so that's why I think Cliff Grow's work, as sort of thankless as a lot of it has been, has been really important in at least um, helping to frame and understand these problems. Great. All right. Well, I'm going to hit play here. Maybe start by telling me a little bit about this photo we're looking at here in your office. Uh, Yeah. uh, I'm Cliff Grow, and this is a photograph I keep in my office of me um, with Jay Hammond in June of 1982, uh, shortly after the uh, signing of the uh, legislation that created the uh, Permit Fund Dividend Alaska has today. Yeah, and you worked on that, right? Yeah, I was the, the, the legislative staff member who worked by far the most on it, and I had a very I had a substantial role in the, in the creation of the dividend. I was not only minority staff that year, I worked on the, on the staff of the legislative minority, but I officially worked, I was only paid for half time. I volunteered to do it. So it's uh, to sort of help with the staffing problem that got created after the coup in 1981. So uh, it was quite an amazing experience all the way around. It must have been four or five years ago now, I saw you do a lunch and learn. Uh, You were talking about what you would kind of playfully called the grow square. Can you explain what the grow square is and maybe what it's evolved into today? The grow square actually started out maybe even as the grow triangle. But the grow the grow square is a way to try to represent the different sides in Alaska's fiscal politics. In most places, the debates over the size of the government's budget are more two-sided. They often feature a lineup of uh, taxpayers versus budget beneficiaries. But in Alaska, don't have two sides when it comes to deciding about the collection, um, spending, and saving of public money. We instead have three, four, five, or six sides, and I sometimes now call that the grow matrix. And the reason Alaska fiscal politics are so complicated is primarily by the, cr- the creation of something we've just talked about, the permanent fund dividend, but also because of the existence of the permanent fund itself and also um, oil taxes. And the grow matrix is a construct that I created, and I'm very fortunate in that the, two f- the, the first two bosses I had in the legislature were both very skilled politicians and great legislators who taught me a lot, and I should shout them out. Uh, Terry Gardner was the very first one. He's still alive, although he lives in Washington State. And the other one who I'm going to 
borrowed this next insight from is Hugh Malone, who unfortunately um, we lost in 2001. Um, but Hugh Malone taught me when I worked for him for, when, both at the legislature and when he was commissioner of revenue for the state of Alaska, he taught me that what's most important in politics is not so much what you love or want, but what you um, hate or fear. So you organize this construct or the grow matrix based on that question, what do you fear the most? Let me, let me try and sum up what I remember from your presentation, no. and then you tell me what I'm missing. So there, there's a constituent group that is reliant on state services. So this is maybe like uh, people that are parents that need the education system to function, things like that. Different state services where it's sort of fundamental to their way, way of life. Now there's a second constituent group that's similar to that. They really rely on the dividend check, and they, that is a large part of their... Uh, income. So maybe it, it might be as much as like a fifth of a, of a family's income. Another one is sort of like wealthy Alaskans, and they're afraid of being taxed. They don't want to be taxed. So um, their biggest concern is that we don't implement any taxes that that imp impact their ability to, to harvest income and gain wealth. The uh, fourth group is the oil companies, and they don't want to have to pay more corporate income tax or whatever kind of fee, user fees on their resource revenue that they're making. And so those are the four groups I know. Who else is part of this matrix? Um, the two other groups I would add to making a matrix, and then it's, based, it's based on what you fear the most, would be local governments who most fear even more cutbacks to assistance from the state. state used to provide a lot more assistance than it does now. And then the sixth group would be sort of an amorphous group of people who are most afraid of a crash to think that the government could make make decisions and take steps that would cause the uh, the Alaska's economy to crash and have them be hurt. And the person I think of the most here, we'll leave out her name, she used to work for the legislature, and we ended up having a long conversation at the Anchorage airport one night when the planes weren't flying as fast as we thought, so we had some time to sit around and talk. And she said, Cliff, uh, I'm a Republican. I worked for Republican legislators, and when I worked in the legislative staff, and, but I also own a house, and though I'm really worried about having a higher income tax, if if we had a higher if we had an income tax brought back, and I, I'd be happy to pay it, if it meant that I could still sell my house someday, or I wouldn't it wouldn't lose its value in a crash. So that is a sort of a sixth data point or a sixth potential group, um, along with the, that I've added to, to the grow square to make it more of a grow matrix. And can you speak to the? situation that we're in now. I call it a structural deficit. So the way to understand what has occurred is, and then the way to understand the politics of it go like this. Ever since the 40s, the late 40s, Alaska has gone through three eras of financing itself. In 1949, um, Alaska, was, the territory of Alaska was just flat busted. And so the, the territory legislature in a 17-day period adopted five taxes. The, the most important of those taxes was the personal income tax. And that, the revenues from that personal income tax were a mainstay of Alaska's budget all the way from 1949 to 1980, when the first big flush of oil revenues, by, by, by 1980, the first big money was rolling in. And so that year, Alaska legislature repealed the personal income tax. Then from about 1980 till about 2015, uh, where the state ran primarily on oil money, money, uh, revenues from both oil taxes and, and oil royalties uh, together, uh, money from oil, oil revenues. And that system worked for decades. And then it started, it just started not working. 
due to a combination of a very substantial and long-run decline in Alaska's oil production, which has now had a more than 75% drop um, since uh, the peak in the late 1980s, from more than 2 million barrels a day down to uh, just around 500,000 barrels a day. And then also the oil prices have jumped all around and, and bounced all around and, 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 and have not certainly stayed high enough to compensate for that big oil, oil production drop in Alaska. And then finally, our legislature changed the oil tax system, the system for imposing oil taxes in 2013 in ways that make us more vulnerable to lower oil prices and, and not especially help us capture the big revenue at the, at the top uh, when the high prices are high. So as a result, the oil, oil money, old oil money fiscal system stopped working and so in 2018, the legislature adopted a new system, um, which is a system for the sustainable spending of the permanent fund earnings called the percent of market value system or POMV system. And so now we work with a combination of, of oil money plus POMV. And um, I argue that, and I'm joined by other observers, um, that we need to go to a, a fourth fiscal system. Um, version 4.0. So I guess the the big question is like, what's the path forward? And and I wonder if it means that some of these constituent groups band together and uh, get what they want versus the other constituent groups, or maybe there's a, as Larry Persley said in one of his op-eds, uh, maybe there's a situation where we all jump at once, where we all jump together. And I, I would love to hear what your thoughts are. Well, first I. I developed the GROW plan, and one of, I think it was Terry Gardner said, Cliff, you're not popular enough to have a plan named for you. So I now call it the Alaska plan. So the Alaska plan is a balanced plan. Um, and I guess I would also talk about three other groups of people here in Alaska in terms of what they want to do. There's a group of Alaskans who think, and, it, and it's maybe sort of two or more of the points of the GROW makers abandoned against another one. So there's a group of Alaskans that are, I would call the shrinkers. And they want to shrink the dividend to fit um, whatever is needed in the rest of the budget. Another group of Alaskans I would call the starvers. And they want to have a very tight spending cap and jumbo dividends. And then that would have the effect of starving public services and leading to crummy roads, um, crummy schools, um, crummy public safety. Then there's another group of Alaskans who I, I would characterize in terms of what they want to do as smashers. And there are people, I could also call them wreckers, but I was going for that S alliteration of uh, all S's. And these are people who, who favor jumbo dividends, no control on the budget, zero taxes. And that's the crowd I sometimes call um, the race to insolvency crowd. They're going to end up smashing the, or wrecking the fiscal system. That, that, that's a, a recipe for, um, I can't say bankruptcy, Pat, because it's a matter of federal law, the state of Alaska can't declare bankruptcy. It could go bust. That in, on New Year's Eve, 1948, the territory of Alaska, and I want to say this slowly, because <laughs> a lot of people aren't going to believe it. And it the state, in the 1948, before all those taxes got, especially the personal income tax got adopted, the territory of Alaska had un, unpaid overdue bills they added up to more than 100 times the amount in the Treasury. And I sometimes say that if you run through all the money and you spend all the per earnings reserve, then um, your next step would be to try to go to the people who ask and ask to spend the per fund principal. And then if you spend all that, you'd say, well, maybe we'll go to Washington, D.C. and petition to have Alaska return to territorial status. So that would be the trajectory that I would fear. 
So that would be another formulation or a construct that I've come up with in terms of three groups of people that I've seen. But I want to add a fourth, more positive group, which I would call the Just Right Gang. And the Just Right Gang would offer a balanced approach where our state would get additional revenues, where we'd have a solution whereby the dividend was was simultaneously grown, so you could save and grow and settle the dividend simultaneously. We could protect the permanent fund earnings reserve account, that, that critical part of the permanent fund, which the legislature can now spend by a simple majority of the, of the vote of the House and Senate this month if it wanted. And we could protect that constitutionally. And we could also think about, and I'm going to go to a meeting soon to talk about a more realistic spending cap, and one that would actually be effective, that would also work for the people of Alaska and not be uh, detrimental. Um, because there may be occasional fat years where you'd want to make sure that you didn't spend all the money all at once. And when I first came to work for the legislature in the early 1980s, there was a massive blowout going on. Right, that was right around the time that the uh, personal income tax was uh, repealed and the dividend was created. It was a very unusual time with the giant revenues. I do find it quite hilarious that, that um, we at a time when we're running into problems with having enough money to spend on things like education, that is, this isn't the time when everyone gets excited about putting spending caps in place. And we already have one in our Constitution. And, and in our statutes. Yeah. And, and we also have, Pat, I would note, we have one of the, at least one of the two most powerful, I've almost heard the most powerful governor constitutionally and of any state in the union. And, and the thing that makes them the most powerful is that that line item veto with that heavy supermajority requirement to um, to override that veto when it, on, on a budgetary matter. Yeah, so there are a lot of spending checks and balances in place. In terms of policy, you just introduced a piece of legislation this last within this last seven days or so, and um, maybe you could tell me a little bit about that. It's You're calling it a type of spending cap, and it does create limits on what can be spent because it creates limits on what the government has access to. Right. Um, and I'd love to just hear kind of the outline of that, if you could give me kind of the elevator pitch. Sure. I'm, I'm giving it partly already, Pat. The um, permanent fund is currently structured now so that there's a constitutionally protected part, the principal, and there's a completely unconstitutionally protected part, the, the permanent fund earnings reserve account. The earnings reserve account, last I checked, had more than $13 billion in it. Um, and the, the way the law works now, the legislature could spend, by a simple majority vote of the House and the Senate, every penny of the, of, of the permanent fund earnings reserve account, all more than $13, million, $13 billion, that's a billion of the big B, you know, this month, right? Which would be a terrible outcome for our state. I, along with you know, eight or ten of the legislators, I keep hearing more you know, co-sponsors joining up, uh, have proposed to instead um, institute a new single account structure that would safeguard constitutionally the entire permanent fund and um, make it uh, really clear um, what this is, uh, that there'd be a system for sustainable spending. There's already this kind of system in place in the statutes, but the way Alaska law works is the legislature can write a new um, law each year and the budget that is passed each year is a law. And so that would trump whatever law you had um, for the statutory system uh, in the statutes. If you put that limit, that P1B limit of roughly 5% a year based on the trailing average last five years or so, then you'd have a constitutionally sustainable, a, a limit that was sustainable on the spending of permanent fund earnings that was in the Constitution and go a long way to protecting the permanent fund, maximizing, maximizing returns, 
and preventing a spending spree by the legislature that would overspend or overdraw from the permanent fund. House Joint Resolution 9. That would be the technical legislative term for it. Like if someone wants to write in and say, I'm in support, that's the one? Or read more about it. So, um, and and so who, like, what kind of reception are you getting from these various constituent groups? Do you feel like this is a solution that will have enough? I mean, changing the Constitution is a huge hurdle. And part of the problem here is that changing the Constitution is very difficult. And so... Um, it's hard to put in constitutional safeguards and uh, and take them out. So I, how does this feel like it's moving to you? Uh, I'm getting a hearing on, on Saturday in front of the House Ways and Means Committee, of which I'm a member. And I want to thank the chair, uh, Representative Ben Carpenter, for scheduling that. In addition, I believe in other steps. Um, the Just Right Gang um, believes also in additional revenues for our state. And I'll introduce um, some measures for that. Um, because we have a structural deficit of a, a, a billion to two billion dollars a year, uh, stretching out as far as the eye can see. It's a few hundred million this year, but within two years it goes to roughly a billion, and then it goes to one to two billion a year, um, um, all the way to the end of the projections. So, constitutionalized PMV, um, raise additional revenues. Uh, when you when you say raise additional revenues, that's like a, a, a secret word that that doesn't actually tell me anything. When you say revenues, it doesn't tell me the source of those revenues, and there are a lot of people that have opinions about the source of revenues. Um, so what does, does it, do you mean a, an income tax, or do you mean a I, sales tax? What is uh, a revenue? I ran, um, I support, and I'm working on details, I supported um, an, an income tax that would apply to um, incomes made by individual residents and non-residents above $250,000 a year. So Pat, just to make you feel better, the first two hundred fifty thousand dollars you make in a year, totally tax free, and then um, above that, um, the amount above that two hundred fifty thousand would be taxed. Um, and so I'm working on on that. I'm also working on, um, you know, uh, changes to the corporate income tax that raise some money. You know, I, th- I think that there are some revenues to be raised, and you need to do that, particularly given the the deficits we have now. So this is kind of a we all jump at once solution. We're hoping. Great. Anything else people should know? I'm going to get out of your hair here, but I... Uh, I... Yeah. Um, it's up to us, Pat. It's up to Alaskans. Um, the federal government's not going to save us. That big infrastructure bill is going to spread some money around the state. But that's not coming every year. That might not come for another generation. Sitting in the chair you're sitting in now is a, a staff member for Senator Lisa, U.S. Senator Lisa Murkowski who said the same thing to me already, that I already knew when she was here in town. Hey, Cliff, there's not... Or, Representative Grove, there will not be another big bill like this coming soon. He suggested one of them coming in once a generation, so that's going to take a while. I would also note that we can't rely on the, on the a giant spike in the, in the oil market or the, the stock market, both of which Alaska's had you know benefit from over the last three and a half years or so, because Russia's already invaded Ukraine and can't do it again. And the, seri- the state of Alaska has been surviving in a series of one-year tricks but that can't keep up. The state of Alaska cannot keep surviving a series of one-year tricks. And so we have to save ourselves. I mean, you say we can't survive on one-year tricks, but we've been doing it year after year after year. Isn't it astonishing? It's amazing. But, dude, um, I, I believe that um, th- this is running out, and it that's why, yeah. yeah. And there are some people want to try to um, make the one-year tricks uh, continuous until they're out of public uh, office. Um, I just don't see that that's a responsible approach or, 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 or that it can work. 
Well, I really admire what you're doing, and thank you for doing I it. I appreciate that, Pat. Yeah, thanks thanks for your time today, and uh, thanks. Uh, have a good afternoon. Same to you. It's sunny. All right. So now we're back in the present tense. Which is also the past tense for listeners. I, I don't know. It's very confusing, but we're not <laughs> recording Cliff Grow anymore. We're talking to each other. Um, Matt, what do you think of this? Yeah, I, I think that is such a good way of sort of breaking down the the issues, right? I mean, I think that, you know, we, we kind of talk about the solutions. We talk about the $500 million deficit, the, the $800 million deficit. And, like, the truth of the matter is that, like, as much as we like these, like, firm numbers, all of it changes, like, on a near daily basis, right? Because oil prices, production, all these sort of things, like, radically change where it really is, like, super-duper hard to project the budget into the long term. But framing it in this other way where you are looking at, you know, the interests of the differing parties in Alaska, I think is a more kind of concrete way to sort of get into the problem, right? Because we talk about numbers, we talk about the budget, it's almost like trying to like hold on to a big handful of sand, right? Like you can get a grasp of it, but the harder you hold on to it and the longer you try to hold on to it, the more it like shifts and, and slips away from you. Whereas, you know, talking about these three, these four, these six, however kind of many sort of different pockets of people you want to talk to, that stuff doesn't change as, it's not as shifting, I think. Right. I think that is a way to sort of get a foothold into this bigger problem, right? Because- as you know, as Cliff was talking about, there's not like one solution that fixes any of this. It's sort of a multifaceted approach. It's going to take a lot and a little bit from everybody. Yeah, and and I I think the framework really helps in sort of like thinking about people's motivations and thinking about like what might get them to the table or what might get them to come on board with something. Is to think like, oh, okay, what are what is each of these groups going to have to say about policy X Y Z? Is it balanced between these groups? You know, is are you asking any one of those groups to carry too much to the load? You know, getting back to our conversation a couple of weeks ago about soccer flops, I think that there's like always going to be, no matter how small the burden is on the oil companies, for example, there's always going to be someone that's like calling foul. And but there is like a bearable amount, right? There is there is an amount of of change right. that's acceptable to everyone involved here. Yeah, I think when you start to talk about the kind of the needs of these different groups, you start to maybe get past some of the initial problems you might have with it, right? So, you know, I think one of the big, really big, interesting conversations we've had, right, over the last couple of years is, well, what about an income tax, right? And, you know, it has really not gotten much traction because, you know, the sort of centrist legislators that sort of have called the shots over the last couple of years are certainly of that group that, you know, is relatively wealthy, relatively to very wealthy, and doesn't really want to see that tax. They feel like it falls on them unfairly. And and I think that when you look at it in a vacuum, I think you can kind of understand that. But once you start to, you know, well, okay, well, why are you concerned about it? Like, how much of it are you concerned about? It? You know, how, how much is... And it... it I think that is a difficult. You know, it's asking the oil companies like, what's an appropriate tax level, right? You know, like yeah. a zero one. A zero one's always going to be the most referable. But you know, when we start to talk about the conversation about you know, okay, well, if you don't want to pay taxes, then well, what's going to happen to the schools? And so, right. I think sort of that, building that in those interests. Yeah. That constituent group of the the people who are worried about a crash that he talked about, like that's an interesting introduction of a new constituent group of people quietly saying, well, I would pay a tax if it meant that our state wasn't going to have a lot of trouble down the road and my house wasn't going to be devalued and my 
kids were going to still have a good school to go to. You know, I think that that's the quiet whisper that's getting a little bit louder is like people sort of coming to terms with like, oh, maybe maybe we should contribute and shouldn't just maybe the purpose of government isn't just to give me everything for free forever with a cherry on top. I think that, you know, if, if we kind of look back to some of the speeches that have been given this year to the legislature, you know, I think that we really heard that pretty clearly from U.S. Senator Lisa Murkowski, right? That, you know, she was really talking about, you know, how the federal funding was a big lifeline to the state, but like, don't waste it, right? Yeah. Don't screw this up, Alaska. Like we, you know, we're not going to get this over and over again, and we need to find ways to make the state a good place to live for the long term. And I think that has been really missing from a lot of our conversations lately. You know, it kind of seems like, you know, it's one thing pitched against the no another where, you know, the, the overall picture of what Alaska is and will be is really not talked about. You're, you're tempting me to go down the rabbit hole of the, of the Alaska Marine Highway federal funding. Uh, and and I'm I'm gonna dive right down it because I'm a sucker for that sort of thing. But I, I I thought the most interesting part of her speech was was when she talked about that federal money. There had just been an article in the newspaper. She had got all this federal funding for the Marine Highway, and they were gonna use a trick of accounting basically to be able to pay for the state's portion of the federal funding with other federal dollars so they could match federal money with federal money and not have to spend any state money. And they're like, aha, we figured it out. And then Murkowski showed up and it's like, come on, you guys got to have some skin in the game. Like this is not, this is not how this works. I'm, I'm breaking my back out here trying to make stuff happen for Alaska and you've got to pony up and make it happen too. You can't just mm -hmm. like throw free money at free money to get more free money. And that to me, I, it felt like a big step for her to say that to the legislature. And it was a little bit of a scolding, you know, to come home and she served in the legislature. She knows the she knows the game. She knows what they're doing. And I don't, I don't know. It just felt, um, it felt like a little bit of a wake up call. All right. All right. All right. We can't get too far adrift here. We got to pull back into port of the financial issues here. Right. Okay. You're right. And I, I think that it's tempting to like chase down a bunch of divisive issues. And we're, we're like, actually that's a great example of like what happens with the fiscal situation It's like you have, you, we have this massive structural deficit where we, the way that we fund our state doesn't hold up. It, it is a, it is structurally unsound and we need to like move some of the pieces and re-rig some of the formulas so that it works. And what Representative Grow is proposing is um, this first step of this constitutional uh, change that would basically protect the permanent fund by making it a single fund, putting the um, earnings reserve and the permanent fund together in one account um, under constitutional protection, and then doing a POMV draw from that account. So that's a that's a kind of a structural fix that means that we're going to have a sustainable source of funding for government forever. <laughs> asterisk, asterisk, asterisk. But yeah, I, I think that like I think that's an important piece right here, right? Is that you know there's a lot of talk about like the first steps that need to be taken, right? right. And I think one of the first ones I think most people would agree is like we need to at least put a lid on some of it. I don't and know. I think like that, that's so funny to me. Like I don't think the lid conversation is like you know like what are we are we spending too much money right now? We're not spending too much money. Well, like all the lid is is in case like the lid is really optimistic. It's saying we're gonna be like 1980s Alaska again where we're buying a bunch of barley farms and like good luck. Wait, are you talking about the spending limit or are you talking about the POMV constitutionalization? Thing. I'm talking about the We're spending both, limit, I, I think, is what when I hear you say put a yeah. lid on it, I mean I hear spending cap. 
I don't mean the spending cap. Okay. So what do you mean when you I'm, say put I a mean, lid on it? I mean basically, well, to, to tie our hands a little bit, at least far as like not overspending it, because that's sort of right. the, the big. So, so I think limiting that, how much of our savings we can dip into at once is different than limiting how much we can spend. How much we can in spend. Year. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And I think that that's, in, that's actually a good distinction to make is because I think that's, that the, the misunderstanding we just had there is probably one that's happening across the legislature, right? It's a, yeah, it's, it's a like, semantic Are you trying issue, to keep right? us yeah. from spending our savings or are you trying to keep us from spending money on services? Right. Words are important, right? So, uh, you know, there are basically kind of two – I think it, I think his proposal really does sort of mirror – or not mirror, but it, it it's useful to compare Representative Groh's proposal here to what I guess is kind of the prevailing – Republican proposal, which is to put a hard constitutional spending limit on state government, right? Which is weird because it also exempts the PFD from that spending limit, but that's that's a whole other issue. And I think it's a really interesting way to look at it because you can kind of look at the idea of constitutionalizing the, the POMV from the Alaska Permanent Fund and, and protecting that as a spending limit, right? It's right. kind of really more i think it's actually more maybe useful to think about it as a revenue limit because it doesn't tell you that you can't spend x y or z amount of money it's just saying that the amount of money that you can pull out of the alaska permanent fund in any one year is limited to this and it really the real reason that that this grows legislation i think is really important at this point in time or at least this idea is important at this point in time is that the big fear is that we won't really address our fiscal crisis either by making the cuts or adding the new revenue or figuring or, or or a bunch of new oil just being just appearing all at once is that the desire the political kind of ex- most politically expedient path is going to be to overspend the alaska permanent fund right which could potentially undermine it in the future i think that's like the whole that's the big fear right here yeah and, and the point Cliff was making is that there's $13 billion that the legislature can spend tomorrow if they want to. It's it's in the sort of, um, you know, unex- the unprotected portion of the permanent fund, the earnings reserve account. And so that's just that's sitting there. And, um, you know, if you think about it in the framework of a like trust fund kid, which is kind of the situation Alaska's in. Right. What this does is it locks up our money in a trust and it gives us an, a steady allowance. And yeah, because we've demonstrated that we are not necessarily the most responsible trust fund kids that's probably not a bad idea right to to be able to say all right here's your allowance every year and do what you can with that and that seems like a good way to ensure that the money that goes to dividends is protected the money that goes to fund state government is protected that the money that the source of money our our oil wells pumping oil have turned into savings accounts pumping money forever right yeah and i think that it raises really the next big question right is that when you look at all this when you look at the dividend when you look at the permanent fund you you can you could look at it and it pencils out right to a place where you could if you eliminate the dividend you could sort of run government without taxes right and i think that's that is one of the major sort of political points you know it's underlining a lot of it right now we really don't talk about it a whole lot because i think there is a recognition that the dividend is an important piece of alaska right and and we can have conversations about that but i think that like one of the big forces here is a, a amount of number of politicians who are looking at it and saying 
Well, if just not for, if not for just not for that PFD, we could have everything we want, and we wouldn't have to pay taxes for it, and it would all be nice. And I think that's like which constituent it, group is that? Do you think? I think that's the no tax group, right? I think it's the no tax slash the don't crash my home prices, uh, home value kind of. Yeah. Also, honestly, like, and it's interesting too because we talk about, um, you know, how this year, you know, education is becoming a really big focus and funding. How do we fund that? And, and you know, I think that the 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 struggle right with the dividend in the last couple of years is that we haven't talked about it in very concrete terms we talk about it you know the dividend cash in your pocket versus like government spending you know and like who likes government spending like i like school spending i like park spending i don't i don't really care for government spending right especially if i don't use it if i'm not using it i don't need it <laughs> uh, i don't think it should be funded but so anyway so this year we have sort of seen the conversation a little bit turn to the dividend versus education and again it's like sort of a false choice right like you could have both right if you're willing to pay for them and and that's sort of the problem is that then you start to get into these other issues and i think that's sort of just a really interesting element of of the whole thing is is sort of when we start to look at these groups and then how they're thinking about this budget problem from that perspective right because yeah we have a structural deficit but you know, a big part of that is because a big chunk of that's going to dividends. And this is where we've had our, we've come to blows. We've disagreed, one. right. Yeah. So what yeah. what is our disagreement? What is, where are we coming from that's different? I'm kind of curious. Because I well, feel like I, we're not think, that far apart, but maybe we are. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I think that part, there's a little bit of me that feels, uh, Like frankly, burn like the fati- dividend? Fati- yeah, a little fatigued over how much, like, pain the dividend has caused in the political like system over the last 10 years right and i think that like it's not really the dividend itself it's sort of the weaponization of the dividend that i'm actually mad about but there is a part of me that i'm being completely honest that is like let's get rid of it because then we could just then everything else becomes a little easier right then we can maybe finally have move on from this fight because this is a fight that we've been having over you know ever since it became pretty clear that the historic formula for the dividend was not really all that sustainable, especially with the kind of fantastic market growth. The lagging average of it makes it so it could potentially be sort of disconnected from where our budget actually is. Um, creates a situation where I think, you know, there's there's been a, a big political, you know, benefit, right, to politicizing it in one way or another. And, and I think for me, at least, I think I think that like that's what I've unpacked since we've had that first conversation where I was like, well, if we just got rid of the dividend, we could have education, we could get rid of like local school bond debt, we could do all this sort of stuff. And I think it it's really because like for me, I would love nothing more than for us to like get to some of these structural issues with this with the dividend, with the budget. Just because it feels like so much of our time, our energy, our legislative attention, our political battles are are revolving around this issue that we really haven't made a whole lot of progress on at all, really, right? We've we've passed the POMV, but you know, as far as the size of the dividend and any sort of like resolution, as far as you know, a, a new legislation or, or a, a public vote about it or, or any of that, like, really aren't, like, there's nothing that to me that says that we'll get this this session or the next session. 
Well, I, 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 so I'm, I'm coming from a little bit different uh, perspective on that. I think you're right. I, I do think the dividend is weird. Like I think it's a strange thing that we, that we put in place, but I think that we've lived with it so long that there's an expectation that it'll be there. And I, I, you know, I'm, I'm an Alaskan who didn't have a lot of money, uh, you know, coming into my young adulthood. And for me, the dividend paid for college, you know, it, it helped me start a business. It covered my rent in multiple occasions when I was like, you know, like, Oh good. It's, it's October. I can pay rent. The dividend meant a lot. Uh, and it meant enough that I have an inkling of what it probably means to like people that are, uh, in rural Alaska or that are trying to, you know, string together an income with a, um, with a subsistence living. And I think that there's a reality of, of a dependent, a dependence on, on the dividend that we've kind of like built a thing that people have built their lives around and we can't, it feels like it would be irresponsible to rug pull that. And it feels like it would be irresponsible to pull that ladder up all at once. And it does feel like a strange construct, but it's a construct that exists and it's a construct that we're kind of, you know, it's, it's a fundamental part of, of what we've kind of come to be. And so, you know, I, that's where I start getting into things like in terms of means testing, I think that the best means test is what Hammond said is, is we should have an income tax and then we should, and we should use that to claw back the dividend, right? So if you're making a hundred thousand dollars a year, we're going to claw back some of that revenue. And part of that's going to be the dividend that we paid out to you. And it's not like the most pretty or, or, or efficient say system, but it's, it's not that bad. Um, and it's, and it gets the state, the state comes out ahead. Um, and then we can pay for those services that we all rely on. Um, sorry about the background noise here. I've got like, there's all kinds of construction. happening. Right. <laughs> um, we're trying to nail but, it down. Yeah. Good. Well done. So I, so I don't think it would be good to get rid of the dividend. I'd love to, I'd love to be able to contribute now that I've had, you know, I've, I've been able to benefit from, from the dividend and I'd love to be able to put some of that, the income that I make back in um, in, into the state that, that has provided for me and helped me to build my career in my life. And I think there are a lot of other people that are kind of in that position. I would feel foolish to just like, as some people suggest, write a check to the treasury on my own and give them my, you know, $250 or whatever. Like, I don't think that that's going to like help things. I think it's a collective effort and we have to kind of decide as a society, this is how we want to do it. I think in terms of the permanent fund dividend formula, that's broken we're not going back like that's it's it that in 2000 was it 2016 i think governor walker when he vetoed that he made a, a tough decision and it you know what here let's let him let's let him speak for himself do you remember the little campy thing where they used to bring out the kid to like show yeah. the show the perm, this is how much your permanent friend there's like mm -hmm. the most depressing one from 2016 when he like trots the kid out to be like well i actually vetoed half of it and yeah, sorry about I remember that. that yeah so i've got the audio from that and we'll just play a little chunk of that here it's very short let me just uh um ba -ba -ba. you have any questions about uh what's going on this year with the permanent fund my first question is why did you make the pfd smaller well, that was a tough decision, making the PFD smaller. Um, Alaska, we lost 80% of our income uh, over the last two years. 
which resulted in a $4 billion deficit. And so we, we asked the legislature for help to uh, pass some legislation to, to balance the budget, to get us out of the, the deficit, and unfortunately that didn't happen. So we cannot continue on without uh, making some changes, because if we do, uh, it'll be very, very uncomfortable in a few years ahead. What happens if we don't fix the dividend? Well, if we don't pick the dividend, uh, it, it, it certainly the, it, it, everything indicates that it will go away in, in the next couple of years. In other words, the example I've used here behind here is the two size piggy banks. So Alaskan born today, by the time they're 18, uh, if we don't fix Alaska, the budget, um, they would have earned uh, $8,000 with a couple of, of uh, dividends uh, you know, next few years and then it would stop. Versus if we fix Alaska, they would, by the time they're 18, they would have uh, received 18,000. So it's, it sort of shows the, the impact of, of fixing Alaska and, and for the long term rather than don't fix Alaska in the short term with just a couple of, a couple of higher dividends. Do you think there will be a PFD in five years when I graduate high school or even in eight or nine when I graduate college? I'm going to do everything I can to make, to make sure that you do have a dividend um, uh, in five years. And, and if we don't make any changes, um, I'm afraid that, that it doesn't look like that would be possible. So part of why I made the hard decision, the unpopular decision I did, was because I want to make sure that, that there's money uh, for the dividend program uh, ongoing for generations in, into the future, rather than just be all used up in a couple of high years right now. So uh, it's, um, it was not an easy decision at all. I know how it impacts every Alaskan. Uh, but it's one that um, I, I felt uh, was absolutely necessary. And uh, without that, uh, the program is at great risk. Okay, it was nice to go back and listen to that because the part of that that I'd kind of forgotten is that the danger that we had was that the dividend was going to go away. We did shrink the dividend to pay for government, but also we shrunk the dividend so that it would continue to be a dividend. I think that our goal, our, our decision as, as legislators, as governor, as Alaskans, was that the dividend is an important part of, of our structure and that we want to keep that structure and we want to keep it for the future and for our children, right? And so... I'm, I'm on the side of like, let's keep the dividend, but let's make a decision about what that formula looks like and what a responsible dividend formula is. And I think that that's the part of the thing that's the all, we all jump at once, right? So that's the dividend group giving their slice of the pie is, is we have to admit that the formula is busted. We're, we're not using it and we need to, we need a new, new formula put in place that we can follow that makes sense. Yeah. I think a really interesting, uh, just listening to that, though, like, it's an interesting point that I think is still really hasn't been all that well, like, broadly understood is that, okay, so how does the dividend go away, right? Because the dividend is sort of up until this point, pretty much a magically appearing thing that we, you know, before Walker, you know, it was just really automatic, right? There wasn't, like, yeah. any legislative thought really put to how much a dividend is going to be. It was just we follow the statute and it spits out a you know, figure between like you know, six hundred dollars to about fifteen hundred dollars, right? And that's just how it is. And the mechanics of what was was happening at that point was that you know the state's earnings reserve account, which is the spendable, easily spendable portion of the Alaska Permanent Fund, uh, was gonna was the last sort of pot of of easily spendable money that we had left in the state. And so the reality was if we didn't kind of put the lid on, on that spending that it was going to run out. That's why we ended up putting in the POMV. The state put it the POMV, which, you know, 
basically puts a limit to what they believe is sustainable, what the fund will continue to earn and how it will grow and all that sort of stuff. And so, you know, that that risk, right, of spending that account down to zero is still a complete and total possibility if we get to that point, right? And and we've kind of already heard, you know, the governor's sort of talked about it glancingly that, um, you know, his budget contains a 400, 500 million dollar deficit. And how do you fill it? You know, and there's not really any other savings accounts around. And so you hear people talk about, well, the ERA is there. They it could go to it, you know, and and there's you, you know, in recent years, we've seen kind of some twisted logic, you know, oh, that's people's dividends already. That's that's the money that should be going to dividends. It's, it, we've been holding on to it. And so. Um, right. And actually, I heard that. So on Saturday, I went to the. um <laughs> God, I say I went to. I watched from my computer. I went. I went to the meeting of um, the Ways and Means Committee. The House Ways and Means Committee listened to Cliff's piece of legislation for the first time, and that was one of the one of the people that was that was there that called in, basically to refer to the earnings reserve account as the money from the stolen permanent fund dividends that was stored up there waiting to be paid out to Alaskans. <laughs> and like, I don't think yeah. that's. I don't think that's happening. Yeah, and I, I think that's. You know, I, I think I think a lot of the points you make, too, about the history of the dividend. I mean, it's the, the fact of the matter, right, is I showed up in 2011, really, you know, and so you know, it wasn't part of my childhood. And it was, you know, growing up here was like a it was an oddity. Right. And when you start and you look at it purely through the budget, the lens of the people who are putting the budget together, the people that also a lot of them that don't like an income tax, you get this sort of like framed message about if we just got rid of it all of our problems would be so much easier but i think that you know one of the things that kind of i i come back to a lot with like the legislature is like who are you kind of legislating for right who are you working for and, and kind of who is the government supposed to be working for right and i think like those are those are important elements of this entire conversation that aren't really like met head on i think that's why uh, representative grows you know, matrix, the grow matrix is, is such a useful element of that because we do start to look at, you know, who are they working for, who are whose interests are at stake there. And I do think that, you know, the more we kind of develop, go into it, I, th I think that, yeah, like if we could at least get into a some sort of system where we're essentially means testing the dividend through an income tax, right, or through something like that where it claws it back, I think makes a lot of sense, right? Because I think there are a lot of people who, for whom, you know, removing the dividend, a lot of it goes into heating fuel, right? Or, or food or rent or like super duper essential things that, you know, and I think on the other end though, right? There's a lot of people for whom dividend is a drop in the bucket, right? For their like annual income and for whom even a small income tax would be, you know, orders of magnitude larger, right? And, and I think that's, that's an important part of that conversation that we really haven't addressed, right? We don't have any, that's the thing is you don't really have anybody standing up there saying we got to get rid of the dividend because I don't want to pay income tax. And you know, it's not quite that way. And, and I think, and, and so bringing that kind of focus back to it is to me really a useful way to think about it because, you know, and I think too, it raises some really interesting questions about, you know, when we talk about the dividend, when I, well, when we talk about the, the 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 essential kind of life important need of the dividend, to me it it, it comes back to 
the, the, the question for me, like in the big picture is like, well, well, then why don't we make it bigger or why don't we make it even more dependable and predictable for people? Right. Why don't we make it a monthly payment? Why don't we, you know, do other, if it's so important to these sort of things, like why don't we reshape this program to be what people say it is? Kind well, of, right. Right. And that's, and that's what, what that's what should that's, happen. I think it should yeah. be like we need a, a, a dependable. We need a formula that works. And whether that's a monthly distribution or annual distribution or we, we need to have a conversation about how to move the dividend forward so that it doesn't become this entanglement of uh, you know public services versus versus individual checks. And right now we're in sort of this almost like impossible political situation and i and the only way i think we get out of it is with a few constitutional changes and i don't know how we get those constitutional changes onto the ballot because i don't think there's enough willpower in the legislature to to make those happen you know i think that almost we're almost getting to the point where we need a citizens initiative to make some of this stuff move forward and i'm also and i'm terrified of that because having been involved in a few citizens initiatives it like you know you gotta be really careful about how those get crafted and they aren't vetted by as many people as a piece of legislation would be and it's not as much of a of a conversation it's sort of like do you want our best shot at this or <laughs> anyways i i think that our path forward lies with constitutional changes and i think that those are going to be hard to come by and so cliff's approach to just changing the shape of the permanent fund and enrolling in the the earnings reserve and taking that off the table is a good first step and actually there are other people who think that's a good first step the um do you remember a lot the, of people think it's a good yeah do you remember the fiscal policy working group yeah hold on just a second i pull out my i Two printed off ago. i printed off the uh the fiscal policy working group final report from the 32nd alaska legislature um one of the top items they list is the constitutional single account permanent fund structure withdraws limited by pomv that's like their top top list item here and they've got some really specific things this is a bipartisan bicameral working group the senate the house and they came up with like this is how we need to move forward and now we need to move forward i think that one of the the big issues though that we're still you know struggling with right is that the dividend is a near endless source of political like steam right and i think as long as it is is so highly political and and partisan right that it 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 does become very difficult i don't know that it's partisan is it partisan it feels like it cuts across lines like you've got people like willikowski lining up with you know like it's it feels very. Yeah, I think it, I think it, it. Well, it felt certainly felt partisan, especially when you know the governor's race sort of so sure. You know, roundly focused on it, but I think that is it is sort of on sort of sells it short to call it partisan, right? Because it ignores the fact that there are a load of Democrats that also believe in this, and who I think kind of you know over the last couple of years, especially during the Walker administration, kind of sold themselves short a little bit because they they said, okay, well. Yeah, we support the dividend, but we also don't want to crash the state, right? We support services, we support these other things, so we're not we're gonna put the dividend on the back burner, kind of with the assumption that we're gonna we're gonna fix it, and right. and then we never did, and mm-hmm. and and so I think a lot of there's a and I think that's kind of why as, as we as time goes on, I think there you see more and more bipartisan support for bigger dividends. You look at the last session, right, where we got the big dividend largely because enough democrats in both the house and senate were saying yeah 
we do too and we and we're not gonna we're kind of tired of you know carrying water for the no tax crowd right the no income tax crowd and so seeing how that sort of plays and is morphing i think is really interesting because i think that there is not this sort of full opposition to the dividend and again and opposition to the dividend i think is maybe imprecise way of wording it but uh, looking to the dividend as the sort of the first source of our solution to the fiscal crisis, I think is losing the support that it once had, right? That this sort of dividend first approach isn't going to work. The problem is there's not a whole lot of like viable alter- alternatives really on the table right now. And I think that's what's going to be interesting moving forward. Do we, you know, do we make the cuts? Do we find new revenue? Do we spend out of savings as long as we can, right? Like those are all kind of the, you know, the spending the savings out of the account seems to be kind of the preferred way of doing it. And it was interesting. One of the last conversations I had with Walker during the, his his campaign for governor in 2018 was, you know, a real sense of lost opportunity, right? Where he was looking back over his term and you know, the state had basically burned through about $13 billion in savings during that time, you know, because they couldn't, you know, they couldn't even get to the solution that the dividend, the permanent fund would help pay for part of government. And so they burned through all the savings. And he was saying, well, what, think of all the things we could have done with that money. You know, think of all the sort of investments we could have made. And instead, we used it to basically maintain the status quo while kicking the can for a couple of years. And I think that is what, you know, as we look forward, I think, you know, that's my biggest fear moving forward. And that's kind of why I like am sort of sympathetic to the the like screw the dividend. Let's just get some. We'll just figure it out. Right. Kind of solution is that it, a lot of this feels like a lot of lost opportunity cost here. I think, though, honestly, a lot of the pandemic has helped sort of bring a lot of the like larger societal, you know, economical inequities to the forefront. And I think that there's you know, as we are addressing this, I think that bringing some of that in, you know, not only how do we build, a, how do we, you know, address our, our, our structural deficit, but how do we do it in an equitable way that is fair to everybody, or as fair as best possible to as many groups as possible, while also building in new opportunity, while also building in equity that wasn't there in the past, I think is, is, is a really important you know that's going to be a big determiner in the, in in the way moving forward yeah and and i think you know this is a good conversation where t- i think we take one small bite out of the apple today and maybe we'll take another bite out of it next time but this is a this is a good start for thinking about this and i'd love to kind of keep chewing through this yeah so where have we landed today we i think we both like the idea of a me some sort of means tested pfd some kind of income tax are we ever going to get there? I'm not going to count on it. I'm not going to bullet pencil that in for my 10-year long-term path forward. But I think that these kind of conversations, the kind of conversations that uh, Representative Grow were having and obviously can, is continuing to have are, are very useful to get us there. And, and and I think that, you know, some of what it really we kind of need a little from almost everybody is a little bit of curiosity about the problem, curiosity about the solutions and, and understanding how you know, how they impact people who aren't us, right, are 
aren't in the exact same situation, I think is really important. And, and, uh, so, you know, maybe we could, you know, help facilitate some of that more moving forward, you know, and, and we'd like to hear from you guys too. All right. I got to run. All right. But, uh, this is a good start. We'll, we'll talk some more next time. All right. All right. Bye Alaska. See you later.